This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, have you ever stopped to reflect on just how incredible your, your testimony, your story of coming to faith really is? I mean, like every story is in some sense a miracle. But every story has an origin story, doesn't it, uh, of how you came to faith. And for me, for example, I grew up, uh, as I know a number of you in here did, I grew up a church kid, right? I grew up a church kid. We went to Sunday school. We went to confirmation class. We served in the church. We sang in the choir. We did all the things. And so there was never really a time where I didn't know of Jesus or believe in Jesus. That said, if you were to watch the highlight reel of my life in high school and college, there would have been next to no evidence of that. And then I grew up and I became uh, what church kids become, which is adult church kids, and uh, got married, graduated college, and Jill and I, we moved to Arizona, and we uh, started attending a local church there, and uh, we got asked to teach the preschool Sunday school class, where every week, this cute little girl would always tell us about her pet bunny rabbit, and uh, right in the middle of like, the serious part of the lesson, now, if there is a serious part with preschoolers, got to tell us about the bunny rabbit, but uh, you know, we, just, we kept doing what we were doing our whole life. We just kept checking the boxes. And that got a little old, so we, we moved a little bit further out of town and decided to find a new church. And we, we tried this church that, it was kind of crazy, it met in a high school cafeteria. Uh, it was crazy. And, and not only that, um, you know, they didn't have an organ, they had, they had a band with drums and a guitar, and occasionally a saxophone. And instead of hymnals, they put the lyrics up on a screen. It was the craziest thing. You, have, you ever been to a church like that? Was, it was weirding me out for a bit, but the weirdest thing of this church was when the guy, Pastor Bill, when he got up to preach, the weirdest thing happened. We loved it. And it was as if we were hearing sermons for the very first time in our lives, and, and it felt like we were growing, and, but you know, we always had an excuse why we couldn't serve. We always had an excuse why we couldn't join a small group, and it was always my travel for work, right? Travel too much, so what? We never did it. But then in 2006, when we moved here to Illinois, we said we got to jump in right away. And we found a church, and it met in a movie theater. It was another one of those weird churches with a band and a screen. And um, we, in the first month, we became members. We joined a small group that met in our neighborhood. We started serving. It was great until two years later when it closed. That wasn't so great. And yet at the same time, I think that church closing was the best thing that ever happened to my faith and to my journey with Jesus, because it led to two very pivotal conversations in my life with a friend by the name of Ryan in a Starbucks out in Crystal Lake. And in the first conversation, he shared how he had been praying with a group of people about planning a new church, and now that he was gainfully unemployed with the church closing down, this seems like the right time to do it. And uh, so he said, of all my friends, you've got the only real job. Uh, I still worked at Motorola at the time. And he said, so can you support us financially, and can we use your living room to get started? And I don't know if you've ever had a friend ask you that before, um, but like, you don't say no to that. And so February 28, 2009, roughly 13 years ago, uh, 26 of us gathered together in our living room out in Crystal Lake uh, for the first core group meeting of Redemption Bible Church. But the second conversation that took place at about that same time, uh, we were talking about some stuff, and Ryan used a big theological word that I'd never heard before, and so I was like, you know, what does that mean? And he defined that with another big word, what's that mean? And he, this like went on for like eight rounds of, what does that mean? What does that mean? Pretty soon, he's describing things that I had not only never heard before, but I just thought were outright crazy and wrong. 
And so being the engineer that I was, I set out as a 30-year-old to read the Bible for the very first time, simply to prove my friend Ryan wrong, uh, that I knew more about what God said than he did. And what I would do is I started this notebook. I still have it today. And I was, I was just writing all these things down. And when I came to something that I didn't understand, that I had a problem with, I'd write the question down and I'd ask him, and, and then we would talk about it. He didn't have every answer. Sometimes he had the same question. But we kept going through it. And what I found was that what I thought God said is not what he actually said. You ever had one of those moments? Like, where, where's that verse again? Yeah, it's nowhere. And my journey of faithfully following the way of Jesus and growing to be like Jesus, it began with those conversations there in that Crystal Lake Starbucks. And it was a journey that led to us selling our house in Crystal Lake to be closer to this church that we thought we weren't going to be a part of long term. It led to me entering therapy and working with a counselor to face my struggle with anxiety and depression. It led to me leaving 17 years of, at Motorola to become lead pastor of the church that started in our living room that I didn't think we were supposed to be part of long term. It led to me going to seminary, which by the grace of God, I finally, after 42 years, it felt like, uh, finished last December. Those of us that graduated in December are going to walk in May. It led to learning to slow down and lead at God's pace, not mine, and live at a more sustainable pace that allows me to hear his voice more clearly and to feel his presence more intimately, and then wanting to share that with others. And so uh, last month, we began a new... Uh, a new three-year journey of spiritual growth and formation with 14 other people that we're calling the way. But like any journey, there have been struggles, right? There have been trials along the way. We, my wife and I, we lost our first child. And then we faced years of struggling with infertility. We had financial loss and selling our home in the pit of the housing market to move Darlington Heights. Uh, struggled to be a father and a husband and a pastor and a student all at the same time. Uh, one fun one was having an individual attempt to gather a group to get you fired and kicked out of the building, not once but twice since we moved in. And oh yeah, there was pastoring in a pandemic too, that was fun. And trying to navigate everything that we've had to face over these last two years, and I think the hardest part of pastoring in a pandemic has been the relationships that have been lost. But, you know, reflecting on your story also um, brings to mind the miracles, the blessings that we've experienced. Like my boys, Ethan Samuel and Sean Gabriel, right? Their, their middle names reflect the miracles that they truly are. I think of the blessing that it is to pastor this church and to be a part of really the only church I've ever, that I want to be a part of. I think of the blessing of this, this beautiful and incredible church home, this building that God has gifted us. I think of you, our, our church family. And I think of the fact that like 13 years later, in spite of all the transitions, all the moves, right? First eight years, six addresses and four zip codes. We lost a few people along the way. There's like, where are you meeting this week? I don't know. In spite of all of that, like, we're still here. And that's a bit of a miracle, amen? And I'm grateful for each one of you that are here. And I'm excited about what God's doing, what he's got in store for us, what's happening, like not just with, with the way, with our spiritual growth, but, but with the pantry, with us truly being the hands and feet of Jesus in our neighborhood and, and, and with family ministry, what we're doing. And I think it's important for us to think back and reflect on each one of our stories, our individual stories and our corporate story, 
to reflect on that story of how it began and how it's going because as you do, you notice the people and the places and the events that help shape your story, that, that guide you along that story. I think of people like my high school speech and drama teacher who two decades ago was helping me prepare to preach a sermon without knowing it. I think of our friends Peter and Suzanne who walked every day of that long journey of infertility with us. I think of those conversations with Ryan, and I think of my wife, Jill, who has been along with every step of this crazy journey with me. I think of the places. I think of, I think of my home church, where the foundation of my faith was laid. Uh, I think of that cafeteria in Gilbert, Arizona, where we saw a church that used guitars and drums and a preacher that could preach. I think, of, uh, I think of that Starbucks in Crystal Lake where those conversations began and our home in Crystal Lake where the church began. I think of Cutting Hall where I preached my first sermon and some of you in this room were there for that and by the grace of God, you're still here. But the more we reflect on our own story of coming to faith and our journey of following Jesus, the more we begin to see how little your story has to do with you. You're not the center of your own story, and you're definitely not the director of the story because there's no way you ever could have orchestrated all the events that fed into your story. There's no way you could have coordinated all the people and all the places. And instead, as we reflect on our story, we begin to see that only God could have coordinated it all, couldn't he? Only God, uh, he could have, his hand, his sovereign hand was orchestrating everything, every event. And you begin to see how your story fits into the broader story, a much bigger story that is all directed by God. And what we see is that reflecting on your story of faith reveals God is the one leading you closer to him. That's our big idea this morning. That's what I want us to see, is that reflecting on your story of faith reveals God is the one leading you closer to him. And that's exactly what Paul sets out to do this morning in this morning's passage here. As he begins a, a new section here in the middle two chapters of his letter to the churches in Galatia that we're going to look at here in our series, What Makes Us Family. And last week, uh, remember, we, he closed this opening section in these opening two chapters. And he closed with this reminder, uh, uh, this, this claim in verse 16 that a person is not justified. We are not made right and we do not remain right with God by works of the law, right, by what we do, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Like, that is a significant claim for him to be making, and he, and he knows that it is. And so he spends these next two chapters, in chapters three and four, supporting that claim. And, and he does it as though he, he's an attorney, right, defending, uh, defending his case in a courtroom. He, and, he, and he presents all of his supporting evidence and showing that his claim, it's not something new, it's not something novel that he's making up, but something that we actually see throughout all of Scripture. And the first piece of evidence he presents is their own experience, their story of faith, their own journey with Jesus. And so in this morning's passage, we're going to see Paul ask a series of five questions that guide us in reflecting on our own story of faith as he guides them in remembering their story of faith, reminding them of what's central to the story, reminding them of the, the origin of the story, of how they came to faith, reminding them of their journey after coming to faith, of the trials and suffering they've experienced. And the fifth question is, is about the miracles and the blessings that they experienced. And these questions, his questions that he asked the churches in Galatia 2,000 years ago, are going to guide us as well 
in reflecting on our story of faith. That's the title of this morning's sermon, Reflecting on Our Story of Faith. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to the New Testament book in Galatians. We're going to be at the beginning of chapter 3, those first five verses. One question per verse. And we're going to begin reflecting on the first question. And reflecting on this first question reveals the cross as central to our story of faith. All right, the cross is central to our story of faith. It's that pivot point in human history. Look down here with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, um, if it reads here a bit different than the way I read it, uh, if it sounds like maybe, maybe Paul's a little bit upset here, a little bit, uh, it's because he is. He's really upset. Uh, E.P. Sanders, he says, the best way to comprehend Galatians is to read it out aloud, shouting in an angry voice at the appropriate points. And would you agree this is one of those points? Yeah, let's reread this then. Oh, fo- this is like when, uh, when Chris does sound, he always makes me yell and I have nothing to yell about today. I got something to yell about. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If someone just walked in right now, they're gonna be like, why is he so angry? <laughs> Paul, he's kind of like, like a basketball coach when he gets all fired up because the, co- the, the refs missed a, missed a call, like a big obvious foul and they missed it and he's like going nuts and he's about to get teed up. It feels like Paul's about to get teed up right here. But what's, what's got him so worked up? Well, if you remember back to the opening week, the opening passage in this letter, he he said that he was astonished, right? He was shocked at how quickly they were deserting God and turning to a different gospel. And what he says here is that that's foolish. It is illogical. It is irrational. It, It makes, what you're doing makes no sense. And now to be clear, like Paul's not attacking their intelligence. No, he's going after their discernment. And he says, you, you've, You've been bewitched. He's he's using pagan language as though they've been cast under a spell. Maybe somebody's got a little voodoo doll with Paul going, or the church in Galatia's there. And uh, it's kind of like, they're like stormtroopers under a Jedi mind trick from Obi-Wan Kenobi, aren't they? This is not the gospel you're looking for. It was as if they were hypnotized or intoxicated, and they're not thinking clearly, and then along come these other people uh, trying to sell them a solution to a problem they didn't know existed. It's sort of like, remember back in the day when you would watch real TV, and if you were like up in the middle of the night and you're flipping through the four stations we had on the farm, uh, it's infomercial, infomercial, infomercial static on PBS. And uh, so you go back to the infomercial, and, you, and you, you begin to realize that you have got to have whatever appliance Ron Popeil is trying to sell you, and you got to have it now, because if you call in the next five minutes, they're going to give you not one, but they're going to give you two uh, dialomatics, chopomatics, vegomatics, any kind of omatic, Ron's going to get it to you. Selling solutions, you didn't know you needed for problems he didn't know existed. I think the same thing happens with conspiracy theories too, right? We get captivated in those. We're bewitched by them because they're providing simple solutions to complex situations. It's as though you've been cast under a spell and you want to yell, like, wake up. Just wake up. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's he's not asking this question to reveal who had done this. He knows it. They know who it is. He's asking this question to reveal what it is they had done. He's asking this question to wake them up. And what had happened is, remember, there were some Jewish Christians that had come in, and they were were questioning Paul's um, 
apostleship, his ministry of the gospel, and they were, they were questioning his message of, of the gospel as well, this, this gospel of God's free grace through faith in Jesus. And what they were saying was, yeah, that's great, but it's not enough, right? Faith is not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. That Jesus isn't enough. It's, it's Jesus and other things, even good things. Jesus and adhering to the Mosaic law, right? Bearing the mark of the covenant of being circumcised. It is Jesus and um, adopting Jewish culture, right? Celebrating the holy days, observing the food laws. What they were saying is you need to look and act more Jewish in order to be accepted by God. And as he reveals that they've been bewitched, he reminds them in verse 1, he says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying here that everybody in Galatia traveled all those miles by foot down to Jerusalem some 15 years ago and saw Jesus nailed to the cross. Um, for example, I, I doubt anyone here was in Salt Lake City on June 14th, 1998, a date that we will remember in this city for all of eternity, won't we? Because it was on that date that Michael Jordan, he, he brings a vault court, and at the top of the key, he fakes left. He goes right, and he, he like nudges Russell Bryan, okay? It wasn't a foul. He just kind of encourages over here. At the top of the key with 6.6 seconds left, he nails what has now been dubbed the shot. And the Bulls won their sixth NBA title in the 90s. And we didn't know what to do. It was so incredible, wasn't it? It was so incredible. But here's the thing, like, none of us were there. Were any of you there? None of us were there. Some of y'all weren't even born yet. But yet you have heard that story portrayed, publicly portrayed with such passion and vivid precision that it was as if it was before your own eyes that Jordan nailed the shot, wasn't it? And these people, they heard Paul preach the gospel, the story of God redeeming his creation, this message of Christ crucified with such passion and precision. It was as if they were standing on that very hill outside of Jerusalem on that Friday afternoon, witnessing his crucifixion with their own eyes through Paul's words. And in Acts 13, it says that when the Gentiles, these former pagans in Galatia, that when they heard this, when they heard the good news of the gospel, of what it is that Jesus had done for them, that says they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Right? They saw the cross as central to their faith. John Stott, he describes it as this. He says, there is no Christianity without the cross. It is central. And while the cross is not uh, the entirety of the gospel. Remember back in the first week, we looked at five misunderstandings of the gospel, and that first one uh, was that we misunderstand the necessity of Christ's resurrection and ascension. While, while, while the cross is not the entirety of the gospel, the cross is central to the gospel because on the cross is where Jesus took on our sin. On the cross is where he paid our debt by shedding his blood, where he died our death by giving his life, right? We do not have life without his death. We do not have life apart from the cross. The cross, it is, it is what bridges the, the chasm that our sin dug that separates us from God, reuniting us to God. 
And the cross, it is so central. It was so central to the daily life of the early church that a guy by the name of Tertullian, maybe a name you've heard, he was a second, third century African church father from Carthage. He began this custom of outlining the cross on your forehead with his thumb. And he would do this throughout the day as a regular reminder of Christ's sacrifice. And, and he wrote, he wrote, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps on the couch, on the seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. There's nothing magical about this. There's nothing mystical about this. It is not something prescribed in Scripture, but it's not something prohibited in Scripture. But it's also not something done just for the sake of doing it. No, he gives a purpose here for it. As a regular reminder of how central the cross is to our own story of faith. So central and such a necessary reminder that, that many Christians throughout the church continue to do a sign of the cross to this very day. And whatever that reminder is for you, we need the reminders of the centrality of the cross, don't we? We need these reminders because we are so prone to forget and believe the lie like those in Galatia that Jesus is not enough, that the cross is not enough, that there's more that we need to do to be made right with God and to remain right with God. We, we buy into the lie that we are not justified by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but that it is faith and making the gospel Jesus and adding to the cross. And so every line of this letter, every sermon in this series is a reminder that it's not Jesus and it is just Jesus. The cross is enough. If every week of the series feels like a repetition, it's on purpose because we need that reminder. And so if the cross is so central to our story of faith, then what is it that led us to a faith? What is it that led us to the cross? What is the origin of our story? Like every, every good story has an origin story, doesn't it? Of how things began and how, how they came to be. Like uh, uh, Marvel fans out there, superhero fans, like um, my favorite movies are the origin stories of how they, they came to be who they are. And we have that. The same is true of our faith. And so reflecting on the second question here in verse 2, it reveals the origin story of our faith, of how we came to faith. Look at verse 2 with me. He asks... Let me ask only this. Let me ask you only this. I just noticed this. And then he goes on to ask three more questions after this one. It's sort of like the preacher that says, and in closing, and then goes on for another 30 minutes. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Multiple choice, two options, A or B. Which is it? But notice here the question, he doesn't question if we possess the Holy Spirit, does he? If we possess the third member of the Trinity. Now that's assumed, that is implied really for the very first time in this letter. Uh, Professor Scott McKnight, he says, to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Spirit. They go hand in hand. There is not one without the other. And so the question is not if they possess the Holy Spirit. The question was how. And he's asking them to think back to their story of how it is that they came to faith. 
And remember, he, he's already told his origin story. He did that in chapter 1, a story that we read back in Acts 9 of, of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, of how he didn't find Jesus. He didn't invite Jesus into his heart. No, Jesus found him. In Acts 2, if we go up a few pages back, it tells the, the origin story of the church, so to speak, uh, as those, those first followers of Jesus, they're in the upper room there in Jerusalem, and the, and the Holy Spirit descends, and everything kind of goes nuts for a bit, and they all start talking in tongues, and it's kind of awesome, and there's like flames on everyone's head, and Peter, uh, what he does is he steps outside, and he preaches his very first sermon, which, by the way, was way better than my first sermon, uh, better than any sermon, might be the best sermon in the history of sermon preaching, because what happened was the guy goes outside, he impromptu preaches his first sermon ever, and 3,000 people get saved in that one day and give their life to Christ and begin to follow Jesus. It says in Acts 2 that simply by hearing with faith what Jesus did for them, they begin to follow Jesus. And now he's asking them to reflect on their own story. Did they receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law, by, by something they did, by, by being circumcised, by not eating this and eating that, by doing a certain thing on a certain day? Was it, was it by listening to those who had come after Paul and, and given the rest of the story, so to speak, as Paul Harvey would say? Or was it simply by hearing the gospel that, a Paul, that Paul had preached to them with faith? And he's asking us this very same question some 2,000 years later, isn't he? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by something you did or by believing in something God did for you? Is God responding to something you did or are you responding to something God did? Is the Holy Spirit earned or is he given? Who took the initiative? Who, Who made all of this possible? Here's a hint. It wasn't you. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not something gained by your good works, but something given by God's free grace. And reflecting on how it is that you came to faith, it can be humbling. Because you realize you didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. Right? The Holy Spirit isn't a reward for a job well done. It's not like the ultimate Awana badge. It's humbling, but it's also encouraging. Because you realize the depth of God's love for you. How deep the Father's love, that he didn't wait for us to come to him and to choose him. No, he came down to us, and he chose us. Come to faith. That's not the end of the story. We don't don't end there. That's that's the the beginning, the beginning of a lifelong journey of faithfully following Jesus, of growing to be more like Jesus. And so reflecting on the third question here in verse 3, it reveals our growth along our journey of faith. It reveals how it is that we grow. So look at what he asks in verse 3. He goes, are you so foolish? I think this is another one of those times to read it angry. Are you so foolish? I I just don't feel comfortable yelling at you like that, though. Are you so foolish? Even like that actually sounds worse, doesn't it? It's even more condescending. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's like, are you going to walk this journey on your own or are you going to ask for help? Which way are you going to go? I think all of us, we are prone to reject help when it's offered sometimes, aren't we? And sometimes we reject help because we don't really think they mean it when they offer it. It's sort of like when you go to move and your friend offers you to help you move, you know they're not showing up. You know how it goes. Like that aunt that they never met is going to show up that morning all of a sudden and uh, at 6.30 a.m. and uh, sorry, can't make it now. Or 
you might reject it because you think they might actually make things worse. I can do this better on my own. If you want something done right, do it yourself, right? Like, for example, if you are uh, ever going to read, you should write this down. Uh, if you're ever going to read, I'm serious about this. If you're ever going to remodel your house and I offer to help, your response should be, got your pencils ready? Bless your heart. <laughs> no, thank you. Now, but usually we reject help because we're stubborn, we're prideful, we're arrogant, we're self-righteous. We want others to see what it is that we accomplished on our own. We didn't need any help. We're proud of what we did. We want others to know it. We want others to see it. We even want God to know it. And we want God to see it. We didn't even need his help. And we're like, thanks, God, for the faith. I'm grateful for that. I really appreciate it, but I'm good. I got it from here. It's sort of like uh, your car wouldn't start, and you're like, hey, God, can I, get a, can I get a little push? And God, he gives you a push start, but then, man, as soon as you pop that clutch and you put it into gear and you go, you're like, you're waving at God out that back window, aren't you? I got it from here. And what Paul's saying is having begun by the Spirit, having come to faith by the power of the Spirit, are you now taking over and being perfected by the flesh? Are you growing to be more like Jesus on your own, all on your own, by your own strength and your own power? Because see, Paul knew that his growth, remember, Paul, Paul was an assassin turned apostle. He was a persecutor turned preacher. He knew that that wasn't all on his own power. He knew that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. And he knew that many in Galatia were listening to this lie, a lie that said that becoming more like Jesus meant becoming more Jewish, looking like them, lining up with them, adhering to the law, adopting their culture. Anglican Pastor John Stott, I think he, he captures what it is that they were thinking, and, and in a sense, sometimes what we are thinking without always knowing it. He says what they were thinking is, it, you yourself must finish by your obedience to the law, by your good works, what Christ has begun, right? You must add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. What we're thinking and what we're saying by our behaviors is that we believe that the cross is still not enough. It was a good start, and I'll take it from here. Man, any time we add to what Christ accomplished on the cross, we negate the cross. We nullify the grace of God, he said last week in verse 21. And any time we attempt to grow apart from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we reject the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This helper, as Jesus referred to him, that he would, that he would send after he ascended. And that too is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling because it reveals you can't do this on your own. And the harder you try, the more frustrating it'll be. The harder and further you'll fall it's humbling, but it's also encouraging because it says you don't have to do this journey alone. Because God will be with you. He will be within you every step of the way. And the way that Jesus has called us to, this journey that he is leading us on, it is not easy, is it? I mean, he said uh, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, not once or twice, but daily and follow him. And so reflecting on this fourth question here in verse 4, it reveals our growth during our suffering on this journey of faith. Right? It reveals how we grow in our suffering. He says, yes, in verse 4, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? You know, maybe the only thing worse than suffering is knowing that you could have avoided it altogether, that it was for naught, it was wasted, there was no point to it. If I had just done this instead of that, I 
I would, none of that would have happened. And if you remember back, we talked about this in the opening of the series, that the Roman Empire, they demanded total submission, right? Worship to Caesar as Lord, praying to the Roman gods. There was no such concept of separation of church and state. But the Jewish people, they, they negotiated a truce, so to speak. They, they, were, they were given a religious exemption from worshiping Caesar. They were excluded from praying to Rome as long as they prayed for Rome. But the Christians, they didn't negotiate this. They didn't bother with it. They're like, we don't, we're not worried about that. We're not worried about our comfort. But they were being persecuted for worshiping Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. And so what some were teaching is that your, your suffering is pointless. Why are you doing this? You're like, you're banging your head on a wall. You don't need to. If you would just look more Jewish and look less uniquely Christian, you could avoid all this. It's all going to end. And so those who suffered many things as Christian, then they began to appear more Jewish just to avoid suffering. And what Paul's saying is that by doing this, the suffering you have experienced, you suffered in vain. There was no reason for it because you have denied the cross. You have denied the spirit. Denying the cross to avoid suffering, it rejects the cross altogether. It's as though Christ suffered in vain. There was no point to it. Thanks, Jesus. I'm going to go do it myself. But what he's saying here, what he's implying here, what scripture lets us know is that, is that there will be suffering on this journey, won't there? We will suffer. It's not, it's not a matter of if, but when. It is, it is inevitable, as Thanos would say. It's going to happen. And, and with that mindset, then rather than constantly seeking to avoid trials, what, what Jesus' half-brother James says, he opens his book saying, count it all joy when you face trials. Why? Why would you do that? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That suffering strengthens our faith through reliance on the Spirit's strength, doesn't it? Peter, he says, uh, he says to rejoice in suffering. Why? He says because you will share in Christ's sufferings. The suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his suffering, we have been healed. Amen? Pastor tweeted this week, the things that make pastors want to resign are also the things God uses to make pastors pastors. I've never wanted to delete and remove a tweet from the history of the internet any quicker than that one. And you know why? Because it's so true. And you know what? We could, we, could, we could replace pastors with Christians. The things that make Christians want to resign their faith are also the things God uses to make Christians Christians, that God uses to grow us into the image of Christ, aren't they? Those things that test our faith are the things that God is using to grow our faith, to make us more like Jesus. God is at work. The Spirit is at work in you, in our suffering. And that's why we can count it as joy. That is why we can rejoice, because we are growing in the midst of it. God is with us in the midst of it. But the other side of this coin is that reflecting on the fifth question here in verse 5, it reveals the, the miracles and the blessings that we encounter on the journey. Like, I don't know about you, I am so quick to forget about those blessings that have been in the back. I, I'm, I forget to look in the rearview mirror at what's, what's happened. So look at verse 5. He, he closes asking, does God, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, 
Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, multiple choice question here. If we go back to Acts 14, again, Acts 13 and 14 is when Paul and Barnabas, they're planning the churches in Galatia. Acts 14 tells the story of a man in Lystra down in South Galatia who, uh, it says he couldn't use his feet. Uh, He had been crippled from birth and he was never able to walk. And and this man, he was listening to Paul preach one day. And Paul, it says, Paul saw him, uh, not just listening, but listening intently. And and through his listening, he could see his faith. He was gripped on every word that came out of his mouth. And so Paul, he, he looks at him in a loud voice and he says, stand upright on your feet. And the guy didn't get slowly up like you've been sitting on the couch for an hour. No, it says he sprang up and he began walking right away. Paul knew that he didn't heal the man, though. He knew that God healed him through him by the power of the Spirit in him. And he's asking them, y'all remember that story while I was there? Because I sure do. It was kind of awesome. And you remember all those other stories, not written in Acts, all those other stories that took place after Barnabas and I left? Like it kept happening, didn't it? And he's like, was God responding to your power or was he revealing his power? Which was it? Is is your faith in your ability or in God's sovereignty? And as we reflect on the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, right? praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the miracles that we've seen, the big ones, the little ones, and all the ones in between, We are reminded of of who God is, of his love, of his mercy, of his compassion, his grace, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. We are reminded that he is a good, good father, a loving heavenly father. Because reflecting on your story of faith, it reveals God is the one leading you closer to him. And so this morning, I've, I've told you a bit of my story. The long version, sorry about that. Well, we've, we've heard Paul's story. We've heard the, the church in Galatia story. We've heard bits of the, of the church in Jerusalem story. We've heard all these stories. There's such great stories in here. And I want to encourage you to use these five questions as a guide in reflecting on your story, on your story of faith. A story that reveals God's faithfulness as the foundation of your faith. Your experience, what you have experienced, it is is evidence of how God has supplied your faith, of how he has strengthened your faith, sustained your faith, because he is the source of faith. And so I want to encourage you over the next few days or weeks, whenever, to, to find some time and to write out your story. As messy as it is, write it out. And uh, this was actually something that I've done a couple of times. I did it the first month of, of therapy a few years ago. He had me write this out. And I did it the first semester in seminary. We, we, we had a class, and that was one of the assignments was to write it out. And I want to I help you with this. I don't want to just send you off to do it. I want to help you with this. And so a while back, I added to the sermon page. If you look at each individual sermon page on our website, I added a, a sermon note. Um, there was one Sunday, Ben, I think you were the one. You were asking me about the questions I'd asked in the sermon. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go put those on the website for you. 
And I've been trying to do that every week since then in the the sermon notes. And a couple of weeks ago, I recommended a book. Remember that prayer in the night book? And a couple people asked about that. So I added a, I called it the sermon footnotes. Uh, Not end notes, but footnotes. Amen? Rincy and I got that. And it's just providing those extra little things that uh, maybe don't fit in the sermon, a little, you know, books that I recommended, maybe a quote that I want you to know about. And so if you go to the sermon footnotes, once we get that posted up uh, today, uh, I'm going to post a guide that my professor, Dr. Sell, gave us. And it's only a few pages long, but I want you to, I want to encourage you to use that as your guide in reflecting on your story and writing your story of faith, because it's going to guide you in thinking through significant events in your life that help shape your story those achievements and failures, those turning points, right, where you you were going this way and God's like, "Uh uh-uh, we're going that way. Those turning points in life and also those freeze points where it felt like you went backwards. They're all part of your story. And it's going to help you reflect on your relationships, those people that have guided you on this journey, friends and family, peers and mentors, even the villains that show themselves in the story. And it's going to help you organize this. Y'all love uh, colored sticky notes? Yeah, he's big on colored sticky notes with this. And as you write your story, as you think about all of this, I want you to remember the purpose in doing this. It's to reveal how God has worked in and through your life. And the best part about this is that as you then go and tell others your story, the, the big version, the medium version, and the little version, kind of like those old exercise shows, you know, have a, have, a, have a big, medium, and a little version. As you tell your story, remember the purpose of telling your story, right? It's to give thanks to God. It is to bring glory and honor to God rather than saying, hey, let me tell you a story of what I did. It's, hey, let me tell you a story of what God did. Let's not forget that purpose. And, uh, man, I'd love to help you in writing that and thinking through that. I'd love to read your story. I'd love to listen to your story. Here's the thing. You grab the time, I'll grind the coffee, and we'll talk about it. Sound good? And let's reflect on our story of faith. Because our story reveals God is the one leading us ever closer and closer to him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.